I'm Kimberly Campanello. I'm a poet and writer and lecturer in creative writing at the University of Leeds. We're starting a conversation here between Simon Armitage and Gavin Bryars about words and music. Drink for drink in the park that night. Me scratching yours, you scratching mine. Till the words came thumping hand over fist and the sky blew a fuse and it started to piss on your Zodiac t-shirt, paperclip bracelet, crucifix pendant, cinnamon toothpaste, chewing gum pavement, licorice protest, dragonfly heartbeat, daisy chain necklace, candy stripe shoelace, finger bob Jesus, pregnancy dipstick, all back to your place, body bag suitcase, mercury rising, cardiac jump leads, calling the crash team, calling the crash team. Simon Armitage is our poet laureate and he was made CBE for services to poetry in 2015 and in 2019 received the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. He has published 12 full-length collections and is a broadcaster, playwright, novelist, and the author of three best-selling volumes of nonfiction. His version of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight has sold over 150,000 copies worldwide. Armitage writes, records, and performs with the ambient post-rock band LYR. His libretti include The Assassin Tree with composer Stuart McRae, a new translation of Ravel's L'Enfant et les Sortilèges for English National Opera, and lyric writing for Huddersfield Choral Society. He lives in Yorkshire and is professor of poetry at the University of Leeds. Gavin Breyer studied philosophy, but became a jazz bassist and pioneer of free improvisation with Derek Bailey and Tony Oxley. Possibly best known for early iconic pieces, The Sinking of the Titanic and Jesus's Blood Never Failed Me Yet, his works include five operas, a large body of chamber music, more than 20 ballets, several concertos, and much vocal music, including six books of madrigals and many substantial choral works. He lives in a Leicester village and on Vancouver Island. So I think both bios speak to the melange of words and music that has persisted through both of your careers and, you know, it's evident why we've brought you together to talk about this. And I'm sort of wondering, many poets are asked, why did you first start writing poetry and composers, why did you first sort of get into music? But why did you first feel that working with this other medium was useful or how did that come about for each of you? Uh, Simon? Thanks, Gavin. Yeah, and thanks, uh, Kimberly, for, for those introductions. Um, I published a book several years ago now called Gig, The Life and Times of a Rockstar Fantasist, where I basically describe my life as a writer, as, as one as a, a, of a failed musician, really. I, I think, you know, when I started being ex exposed to the arts, it, it was an exposure to, to music that, that first fascinated me and sort of gripped my senses. You know, that was the, the radio in the kitchen and then the, the TV in the living room top of the pops and then it was access to the 
to the record player, which was a, a sort of grown-up contraption. Um, but you know, when you had access to that, you you had another level of of power in the in the family hierarchy. And then it was owning your own records, owning your own ways of of listening to music, and and then and then you know shows in our family, going to to shows and uh, you know corny, quite schmaltzy shows that were put on at the at the local village hall and then, and then going to gigs where music became quite a subversive thing and you took some sort of ownership for it and I, I think through all those years I, I really wanted a, a life in music I was really drawn to music I was very passionate about it and you know there comes a point in your life when you you fine-tune what whatever talents you have and I seem to be reasonably good with words and have never managed to master a single instrument uh, so uh, the, the that, that sort of course of, of engagement with, with art in some way was was really decided for me by a lack of ability in in any other direction but I've never stopped admiring music loving music being being thrilled and and moved by it and just naturally wanting to to collaborate with musicians and, you know, the substance itself. And Gavin, were you a failed poet, or is that is that how, is that how this happened? I'm a failure in everything. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say I was a failed poet, but I was certainly a, a reluctant musician. It was a long time before I became a musician. Most people uh, who become composers have some early track record of writing something rudimentary in their childhood or early teens and something substantial and then going on to university and studying. Uh, I didn't do any of that. I drifted into music. I went into music because I was thrown out of geography in the sixth form at school because I failed every single piece of work in the whole first term. And the geography teacher said, you should drop it. So I went to see the headmaster thinking I'd get away with one less A level. He insisted I did another one. So I said, well, I suppose I'll do music then, sir. And that's how it happened. I was very lucky because when I did do music, I found myself the only person doing A level. So I was in a one-to-one with a music teacher, Dr. Cyril Ramsey, for almost two years. And he was a remarkable man. Maybe I'll talk about him later. But at the same time, in the sixth form, I was fired with a love and interest in poetry by uh, a young teacher. It's probably his first teaching job. Came to teach at Gould Grammar School, and he brought poetry and literature generally alive for me. There were decent people teaching literature before, and I was okay with it, but a measure of how it was before, I remember there's a teacher called Mr. Calder, a Scottish guy, and his way of teaching iambic pentameter was to say, the example is, I took my little cutie to the flicks, uh, which is technical, right, but no, it's not riveting, and it's hardly contemporary, uh, even at that time. Um, but this chap, I think he was called Mr. Smith, was also a jazz pianist. He, he was probably 21, 22, 23, something like that. Obviously, were things we had to study. Browning, I actually fell in love with Robert Browning. But he also brought in things like LPs of poetry and jazz, recordings by um, Kenneth Rexroth, William Carlos Williams, and various beat poets, Ferlinghetti, uh, with people like Jerry Mulligan playing them. And I could see that you know, poetry became not just something on the page, but performance art too. And I was fired by that. In fact, at the end of my year at the grammar school, I got the school literature prize. 
I didn't get the music prize, but I, as it happened, what I chose as my prize was a book by a composer, Paul Hindemith, on the craft of musical composition. So the two things were there even then. I drifted into things, but poetry and other forms of literature were always up there for me as being absolutely vital. The things sort of came together in a very haphazard way. There's no structure to my life or career whatsoever. And although I was given a professorship and I always have like maybe three honorary PhDs, my only qualifications are A-level music and grade eight piano. I'm not a good role model for anyone. So if I find myself giving a talk at a conservatoire to a group of postgraduate students, I just say, well, don't look to me for guidance. I can tell you about how I do things, but not how to develop as a composer. You're far more qualified than I am. Not, uh, not being a good role model is the perfect role model, <laughs> in, uh, in, in my opinion. I, it's very interesting listening to you, Gavin. I, you know, I, I feel as if we've got a lot in common in our backgrounds. I mean, for me, English was all, always uh, a sort of subversive subject in the sense, well, particularly with poetry, that it felt very alternative. And I know that's become quite a mainstream word now, but back then it was something I was doing and I was interested. It was just for me that nobody else really knew anything about. You know, it was a, a, a place of refuge, a place of seclusion. I didn't really want anybody to know that uh, I was reading poetry and I certainly didn't want anybody to know that I was writing it when that started. And I think it's probably for those reasons, as well as some uh, academic ones, that I've never studied English formally uh, beyond high school. Um, I'm, I'm completely homemade in that respect. And I think if I had gone on to study English formally, it would have been a disaster because, you know, I was very truculent and unbiddable at that age. I didn't want people telling me uh, what to read. Even if they were showing me the really good stuff, I would have gone in the other direction. So I, I sort of had to find that out for myself. So I, I wonder in, in that respect, whether we've followed, you know, quite similar paths, career paths, not, you know, not necessarily careers really, but just, you know, we've sort of inched our way forward and explored our subjects until we've become at least slightly proficient in them. I think there is certainly comparable things there. Um, I mean, one of the way in which I, not developed, but advanced was, I feel like I was learning how to be a composer by composing rather than studying composition. And one of the ways I did that was I would say yes, to every invitation to a project, and then work out how I could possibly do it. It's risk-taking, but it means that you learn in, in a kind of pragmatic way what works, what is practical, what isn't stupid, what doesn't cause people suffering, what makes people feel good about themselves. You know, so now if I write something for, say, a, a string player, I know how to make put his hands in such a position that he, he feels good about himself, even on the viola. Um, you know, he can... Uh, um, I can As a violist, viola. I'm pleased to hear that. I'm well, that's to... right. Well, I love the viola, and I, I do write a lot for the viola, but I think about what the hands are doing, what they have to do. I remember when I first started writing, my first big piece outside a lot of whole experimental area, which we can talk about separately, when I was doing a lot of post-cage work, I worked with Cage in America and others in in UK. My first big thing was when I said yes to a project, which was to write an opera. I was asked by the American writer-director, Robert Wilson, and I said yes to this, even though at that moment I'd written nothing for the human voice, nothing for orchestra, nothing for the stage, 
I'd only seen one opera live, which was at the University of Illinois, where I saw Gunther Schuller's The Visitation. I came from Ghoul, where there was no live music of any professional level at all. Everything that was done by amateurs by ourselves. The opera was around about five and a half hours long, in a language I neither read nor understood, ancient Greek. It was the whole of Euripides' Medea. And I had eight months to write it for one of the greatest opera houses in the world, the Fenice. And I said yes. And I was teaching full-time as well. And it was a nightmare. I completed it, but ironically, it was cancelled. It was this thing of embarking on something and then finding your way through. And it was when I first met the orchestra in Lyon, which is the opera house, where it's eventually done after cancellation. I could then work directly with musicians. And that's how I learned my craft, was by listening to what the performers tell me, because they know more about themselves, their instruments, their voices, than I ever will. And composers can be very arrogant and say that they will tell these people what to do. Well, a violinist would tell me, you know, this arpeggio I've written is very nice, a very beautiful harmony, and it works okay. But if I were to just invert the notes a little bit this way around, then that third finger wouldn't be forced back quite so far, and it'd be more comfortable. The sound would be the same. So you learn about those physiological things. And so suddenly the violinist realized, I've thought about him or a percussion section, where there's, say, five people playing percussion. Someone's got to play a tubular bell, one bar, and two or three bars later, he's got to go to the snare drums. Now he's got to change his mallet, he's going to go to another place, can he still read the music? How long does he need to get there? How long does he need to pick up the sticks? I think of that whole choreography. So the percussionist, when he's doing that, I'm not making him juggle unnecessarily, or in a clumsy way, or force him to feel foolish, or under threat. He knows that I'm more or less timed, that he can get from A to B, do what he's got to do, and get back, and so on. And that whole thing of thinking about the whole performing situation is what I learned pragmatically by working with musicians rather than studying scores, technique, uh, and so on. I wonder, in light of that, when we think about the amount of setting that you've done of text, and then Simon, the amount of work you've done with musicians how you view that relationship. I mean, if it comes out organically, if it's a kind of host-visitor relationship between language and music, or how you proceed. I mean, is it a cross-pollination? Is there another metaphor you would use? Is it just brute force of figuring out how to make this thing work for each of you? Because you're both working across these directions. And it's really interesting to hear Gavin describe possibly the most ch challenging opera I've ever heard kind of written being the first the first one you know so I don't know Simon how you view that relationship between text and, and and music when you're working in that way or if it depends on the project perhaps probably does depend on the project and, and the people involved I think the greater part of my experience has been writing something first which has then been set to music afterwards so one example would be The Assassin Tree, a libretto which I wrote for Stuart McRae. So this was, was the first sort of large-scale musical piece uh, I'd, I'd written. And just as Gavin was saying, you know, I, I had a vision of myself nodding in the room and saying yes to doing this and then going away and thinking, I've no idea how to do this, I, I, you know, whatsoever. And, you know, that in some senses that typifies my approach to everything I've, I've done. I, I, I like signing up for things which are hugely problematic and 
the challenge and, and figuring out the solution to that problem becomes becomes the work. I think you can apply that right down to an individual poem. You know, the idea is the problem and the, and the poem is the solution. But in, in the case of that particular opera, we had long conversations about subject areas, um, about avenues of approach, about particular words that were difficult to sing and so on and so forth. But beyond that, I really sat down and wrote what I guess was a, a fairly you know, traditional libretto with singing parts for recognizable characters, um, a narrative arc, um, an established story from the Golden Bough in the background, handed that over, and then Stuart made the work around it or, or to it, uh, or got my work to fit what he had in mind. And I think there was a sense that, um, you know, literally, physically, in terms of engineering the piece, his was the greater part of the task. Um, you know, I did what I had to do in maybe three months on and off, and it probably took Stuart the best part of 18 months slaving over whatever it is you compose a slave over, Gavin, Sibelius or a, 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 a quill and manuscript paper, I, I, I don't know. But I, I think there was definitely the sense that it was his project to which I was contributing, you know, and was, was, was very happy to to play that part and, and recognise that that was my fit in, in that project. I think that's also what you describe is what wasn't the case, obviously, with my first opera, where I had an established classic Greek text, a classic Greek play, where I, I wouldn't be able to change a word. Uh, I could omit things, I could edit it down, though in fact I didn't. It is a, a, the whole of Euripides Medea is, is the libretto. But in the second opera, and I worked with the poet Blake Morrison, that was, as you described, Blake worked on words, and then I would work on setting them. As it happened in this case, uh, we did initially a kind of a pilot project where I was offered a concert tour, and I decided to do a, a kind of epilogue from this opera, which was still in planning a stage. But the epilogue wouldn't be the epilogue as it had been in the opera, though some part of it might be. It was a kind of a way of telling the whole story in flashback. So it's about 25 minutes long. In the opera itself, when this epilogue appears, it's about six or seven minutes. So Blake sort of wrote a kind of precy of the whole story from the point of view of a character at the end of the opera. And that's what I said. And I found, interestingly, it was the first time I'd actually enjoyed or felt comfortable setting English. Before that, I'd always avoided setting English language. So I think it's because maybe because it was an English poet writing something specifically for me in English that meant it was um, comfortable and um, really easy. Later, I then came back and we worked on the whole opera, but we'd already established this way that I could change a word, ask to remove a word or to change a line, and there was that give and take. So we've kind of talked a bit about opera and about the ways you both made a foray into that form of writing, whether music or, or language. But I'm wondering, you know, Gavin, you've worked with Shakespeare's sonnets, the sort of read text version followed by the sung version. And Simon, your work has both been sung and spoken and often you perform with your band speaking and not singing. And so I'm just wondering if I could hear you both sort of reflect on that. I mean, are you okay with that, Simon, as a poet? And Gavin, how do you feel about taking 
Shakespeare and, and stretching and moving that language through the air in a different way. Simon? I think um, my first experience of listening to poetry, traditional poetry set to music was through Benjamin Britten's works. And I always felt that there was a tussle going on there, uh, quite a struggle in some ways between what Britten wanted to do in his compositions, which to my ear sounded um, you know, very modern, and with what the poets had written into their work, particularly you know, with somebody like Auden or, or Hardy, where there is um, a fixed rhythm there, even if it's not you know, a recognizable poetic rhythm, such as iambic pentameter, but nevertheless, a cadence and a, and a lyricism, which sometimes the, the music seemed to have to dismantle. And I guess in terms of my own work, um, I've, I've often heard settings of it by composers and felt maybe for the same reason that it's not quite working or it might just be that I'm too close to the work. You know, I've, I've lived with that work for so long through its composition, through its publishing and its printing and maybe given readings of the work that I've settled into a very strong sense of, of what it sounds like. Uh, so just to hear it in somebody else's voice, never mind set to, to different rhythms, can be, can be quite alarming. I've become very comfortable over the last few years with working with a band where I, I, I don't sing anymore. I mean, I, I sang a lot when I was younger. I, I had uh, what I now think of as this very, very beautiful treble voice, uh, which you know, just disappeared as treble voices do. And at, at some point later in life, I thought it was out there waiting to be you know, reclaimed that I should be able to, uh, to have a sort of grown up version of that voice again. And I'm not sure that I, I ever found it. Um, but I've become very comfortable with writing now for a band and, and speaking the lyrics. And it, it isn't just because that plays into who I am and, and what I do. I think it's because I've always been really excited by the combination of music and spoken language. Even in pop songs, I really liked it when the singer just talked. 33 and a third. He forced the door and found in the bedsit the pulsing hook line of diamond on vinyl. Arm still ploughing, the run out spiral, the lost module of cartridge and stylus, and captured orbit around the spindle, a looped circling whirlpool in swan song died as they craned up the weightless needle and lowered him down on the rope that he swung from. Listening to, to Gavin's work, uh, his work with Blake Morrison and um, particularly those pieces 
Gavin, is it called Man Sat in a Room Gambling? A Man in a Room man, Gambling. Man in a Room Gambling, where it's, it's quite instructional in some ways, um, you know, a, a voice describing how to play certain card tricks uh, to, you know, a, a musical background or a musical foreground with, with these spoken pieces in, in the background. Just a very, very exciting, uh, in my ears, combination of, of noises. And um, I think it's interesting that, you know, there's been a revival or a, a renaissance of that kind of combination of spoken language and performed language with music uh, in poetry of late. Yeah, I, I enjoy working with spoken words as distinct from written uh, from sung. I mean, singing text or using text uh, setting to song is very different. And there is also the pace of the language. If you're doing it with speech, the language is flowing along very quickly and very naturally. When you sing it, you slow down the time hugely, and it might be a minute before you get to the end of a sentence. You more or less forget how the sentence started, especially for some long melismas where they're kind of vocalizing on one vowel or something. You lose the language altogether. And I generally find that kind of uh, approach to setting language is almost a little bit disrespectful, and a little bit kind of indulgent on the part of the composer. It's saying, look what beautiful noises I can make with this one vowel, uh, and so on. But you lose a sense, you lose a meaning. So a lot of the aspect of the words, the most, some, probably the most important aspect, its actual significance disappears, and it's simply just a sound. Whereas with the spoken word, it's different. But at the same time, when I do something with a spoken word, I like to do it within a framework whereby it's not just sort of like rather randomly spoken over a period of music but it's sort of locked in to sort of musical phrases or musical periods. Mm. In the case of Manning Room Gambling, that was 10 texts which Juan Munoz wrote on how to manipulate cards, effectively how to cheat at cards, how to deal from the bottom of the deck and so on. He read them, and then what we decided to do is that each one would be exactly five minutes long. The idea was it would be a five-minute broadcast, rather like the shipping forecast. That was our idea. So it was actually intended for a broadcast medium. So all 10 had exactly the same structure. After four seconds, he will say hello, or good evening, welcome to A Man in Room Gambling. Good evening. Once again, we present A Man in a Room Gambling. At four minutes, 54 seconds, we say thank you and good night. And in between that, you'd have this whole narrative. Now, clearly, he would speak these things at different speeds. So what we did was to just pace it so it felt like either a natural pace or a slightly slow one, but still a natural one. And then the music was locked into those words. There's a moment, first he describes roughly what he's going to do, and then he starts describing the action of doing it, and he always starts with the word now. Now, as on every evening, take your pack. And I always put that on the first beat of a bar, with the cello pizzicato. Now... The metrical unit is one beat per second. So I have clock time and musical time being exactly the same. So I can put his speech exactly within the music. Now you have your hand plus one extra card. What is to be done with that card? No British artist 
has achieved adulthood or even proved their nationality until they've referenced the shipping forecast <laughs> at, right. so, at some point. Um, I absolutely hear what you're saying there. And it's also, I think, the case that, uh, you know, despite hitting those two marks that you were talking about, between them, there is a sense of language being slightly off grid. I mean, literally off grid in terms of the, you know, the composition not working to a, a click track. I think the other excitement for me about speaking language uh, rather than having it sung or singing it myself um, is that it's simply more comprehensible. You know, I've, I've worked in several settings now and, you know, really labored over texts, libretti, lyrics, uh, spent a long time on little nuanced half rhymes and so on and so forth. And then heard the performance and haven't been able to, to hear a single word of it, which is astonishing given that I've written it. I've been sitting there through a whole performance of about an hour and a half thinking, I'm not sure where I am now. I know I, know I wrote something along these lines, but I, I, I don't. And I, I'm just interested, Gavin, in, in, in your take on this. What, what happens to language in you know, for want of a better word, classical music, because it seems to me that as it crosses a certain threshold, maybe, you know, up the hierarchy of, of musical art forms, it becomes incomprehensible as language to the listener. And I mean, it's not a problem for Sinatra, uh, you know, when we listen to him sing, I don't know, that's because there aren't as many instruments playing or something, but it's, it's pin sharp. But in, in classical music, it's rare that you can actually hear what is being said. And I, I don't know whether that's because the linguistic elements are usually delivered through some other means, uh, you know, in the program or in the surtitles or subtitles, or whether we don't really need them because the stories on lots of occasions are are quite simple and we and we know them to begin with anyway. But if that is true, you know, why do we need people to write lyrics? Yeah, that's a, a long and quite complicated one, but there are several things there. One, I think that uh, it's chiefly in the area of opera where you get the distortion of language. There, I think you get these very elongated lines. If you were singing, say, a uh, leader or some chamber music song, the, the language and the piano accompaniments are so precisely linked and are equal in the best examples. I mean, you, you, if you think of the great leader writers, Schubert, Schumann, uh, Hugo Wolf, Richard Strauss, you would say that Schubert, there the piano accompaniment is slightly secondary to the, to the singing and you hear the words far better and the song better. Oh, In 
case of Schumann, he tends to give the piano slight prominence. So there's more going on in the piano part. And then you get a sort of perfect balance, I would say, with Hugo Wolf, where there the piano and the voice have equal strength and each is given equal attention. Uh, the result is you hear the poem much better in context. And I think it's generally within that, that area of classical music, classical chamber music, or unaccompanied song, you know, a cappella singing, early music, uh, some other forms of uh, a cappella singing, that you will hear language much better. But it's a problem of diction, and it's a problem of value, how much the people value the language that they're using, what they're setting. And singers are not necessarily trained to uh, emphasize text. You mentioned Sinatra. Sinatra is someone who probably has one of the best musical dictions of any singer, probably him and Tom Waits. I would say the two who you will hear every single word because they, they work on the consonants a lot. It's not just the vowels. And the aim of a lot of classical singing teaching is to create a beautiful vowel sound. They don't bother too much about the consonants. You're not quite sure about the word endings, for example, which are pretty damned important. It's a, it's a certain arrogance, I think, I find, in th that use of language and a certain sort of almost established modus operandi where they will accept that you won't understand. You, you mentioned that you could sit through a work of yours where you know the words, of course, but you can't hear them and you know what more or less should be there and you know what is there because you know how it, you've been to rehearsals and so on, but in performance, your experience, imagine what it must be like for a, a listener who didn't write the words. I mean, he's going to struggle even more. At least you have that insight. And Blake Morrison and I, when we worked together, we worked with uh, Jim Holmes, who was the conductor of Dr. Ox, and he would have people in the audience in rehearsal checking how much of the language they could hear in the Colosseum when we were with the ENO. And it's vitally important. And it's sometimes the venues make it almost impossible. I've done three large-scale operas for big, big opera houses, and I've done two chamber operas. And I find the chamber opera works much better because it's almost a little bit more like musical theater, like a, a musical. It's more intimate. You may even use radio mics so you can bring the words forward. You're not conditioned or swamped by the environment. You can focus it almost as if you're doing a CD recording, in which case there you can bring the words to the fore. And for me, I shouldn't maybe say this as a composer, but for me, words are far more important than the music. The words always come first. And without the words, I wouldn't have a hope in hell of writing anything. I need the words to write. Obviously not for a cello concerto, but in general, and a lot of my work is involved with text, words are absolutely vital and I respect them. I want them to be heard. Could I ask quite a conceptual question on the basis of that? Because I think that's a really interesting jumping off point artistically, this question of language and expression or whatever we think artistic practice is. And I wonder if each of you view music as a language. Well, first we might ask, what is a language? Do you view music as a language or do you view it as a kind of a material that doesn't have fixed semantic properties that you can work with? I mean, I think these are questions that obviously connect to certain musical styles, periods, literary styles and periods, but if you had to pin your sort of own position today on, on uh, the 28th of January, is music, a, is, is music a language? Is music a material? How do you see it? I don't think music behaves linguistically, in all honesty. There are books called The Language of Music, 
some quite famous ones and very well written and very intelligent ones. And they will try to draw from musical examples precise meanings, say a certain musical phrase, a falling phrase in the French horn, say in Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet overture, means something particular. It means longing, that da-da-da-da-da-da, dropping as it goes down. It means some sort of eternal yearning. But I, I doubt that Tchaikovsky was thinking yearning, yearning, yearning as he wrote that at all, any more than I would. Uh, I think the Mendelssohn argument is that music is far too precise. That's the problem. It's very precise, but it's not linguistically precise. It has an emotional force which is very direct, and it's helped enormously by working with words, but in itself, it is not a form of uh, some sort of semantic organization. Yeah, I, I wonder if, in some ways, you know, music is a little bit like light. You know, we haven't really quite defined it. Sometimes it does seem to operate as a substance, and sometimes it doesn't. My own take on this is that when I am working in music, when I'm working with music, I feel very grateful to be absolved of the responsibilities of language. When I work in language, I feel as if it's, it is a precise instrument and that we cannot, once we've learnt language, divorce ourselves from dictionary definitions and from our understanding of language as a tool of communication. And even though there are poets who I think try and use language as a more abstract material, in some senses, I think they've chosen the wrong substance. Because, well, I said in a lecture once, you know, unless you've suffered some kind of blunt trauma injury, you cannot unlearn language from the way that you've learned it as, as a child, in, in the way that you've acquired it. And that is a, a thing by which ideas uh, some of them very basic, some of them very complex, are communicated. It is uh, information at the end of the day, even though we, you know, we use it in a very creative way. Music, it seems to me, or for me, becomes a way of, of working in art without those limitations. And so if I, I hear a note or a chord or a, a progression, I don't feel as if it comes with fixed definitions. And that's very, very liberating. And one of the reasons why I say this is that I, I know when I'm writing lyrics that I can sometimes be too convoluted. Uh, you know, I, I can overuse language where occasionally all you need in a lyric is la, la, la. Because if you put that in combination with the right chord prog progression, it becomes utterly transformative. And e even though, you know, if you were to try and do that in a poem, uh, you would be you would be laughed out of uh, whatever you're in. <laughs> it seems to me one of the key questions is the power of repetition or elongation or time in both music and language. And Gavin, to return you to to one of your iconic pieces, but in Jesus's blood, which you elongated according to what was possible technologically, and yet it's the same text repeated continuously. I wonder if you might sort of talk about that because the impact of that seems to tie in with what Simon is saying here. You know, it is a kind of a la la la, but that reaches a sort of transcendent quality through repetition. Jesus' blood never fell with me. 
yet Never found me yet Jesus' blood Never found me yet This one thing I know For he loved me so Jesus' blood Never found me yet I think, yeah, I can see what you mean with Jesus' blood, but it's not just language there. There's a kind of context in which you're hearing the language and where that language comes from. This is a, an old man singing freely in the street without any prompting, without any intention, just singing this phrase. And I now know from various research and so on that he made it up. It's just not an established piece of music. He improvised that which makes it even more interesting. But that phrase goes going round and round. After a while, it sort of intensifies the meaning. There are ways whereby if you repeat a word endlessly, eventually you lose a sense of it. You know, those, some of those Steve Reich repetitive pieces like come out to show them, come out to show them. Eventually you hear just a rhythmic thing. You don't hear the language anymore. You just hear rhythm and percussion as it were. In this case, uh, this meaning is intensified by its repetition. And one of the ways I intensify is by gradually modifying the context in which it's heard through gradually evolving orchestration and accompaniment. Never found me yet This one thing I know For he loved me so Jesus' blood Never found me yet Never found me yet Jesus' blood Never found me yet This one thing I know For he loved me so It's as if you're gradually changing the setting of the word Almost as if you had a kind of a, a jewel, a diamond in a, in a ring, and the jewel stays the same, but the setting is changing all the time. Ultimately, one would say, in the case of a, a jewel, that it's the setting that makes the jewel beautiful and valuable. Rather like if someone takes a folk song, transcribes it, and sets it to music, there's a danger of ruining that folk song unless you make the setting itself very beautiful and appropriate. So just as you can destroy a diamond by the wrong setting, so you can destroy words by setting them inappropriately. So it's a subtle combination, but that deals with meaning being developed through repetition rather than being erased through repetition and not really modified. I think it gets intensified. It's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, you use that um, metaphor of the jewel because a lot of jewels and precious metals in this world have no real intrinsic value in terms of their rarity or their, mm -hmm. their, their functionality. It, it is ascribed 
meaning and contextual meaning. And what you were talking about in relation to music, I think also holds true with poetry. And I talk to my students a lot about this when they're writing their poems, uh, that if you are embarking on a poem about a particular subject, subconsciously, you might start gathering together all the kind of marquee Hollywood words that you think you're going to use in the poem. But actually, uh, it's the it's the mortar, you know, the the little sort of lubricating words, the conjunctions, all the words that are, you know, not very eye-catching, but have to work very hard uh, to hold this thing together, by which poems tend to be judged. How well can we manipulate uh, that sort of background material so a poem doesn't seem too awkward or eggy or... Um, you know, precocious, despite using the same sort of major verbs or, or nouns, the contextual thing is often the language by which a poem is, is judged. And, and presumably that holds true in, in music as well, right, you know, right down to the actual notes. Yeah, it's a complicated thing. I mean, <laughs> we both do what we, what we do. I would never attempt to write a text for myself to set. There are composers who have set their own, made their own libretti for operas. I've been asked if I would, and I couldn't. At the moment, I'm writing a song, My Hometown Ghoul, which I've been commissioned to write. And in theory, I should be able to write that, but I, I find I can't. And so I'm working with poet collaborator Blake Morrison again in terms of doing that. Because although he doesn't know ghoul as well as I do, he knows it through me and he knows the various things we've talked about and he can express it's just a way of combining two or three words if i tried to do the same thing it would not work in the same way because you and he can handle words far better than i can i can I have the gift of the gab but not the gift of writing it down like you do it must lend itself to a good limerick surely Cool. <laughs> I, there are all sorts of things in Google which I wouldn't dream of. You, you've got to be very careful. You know, I, I could do the same through Marsden, but I won't. But... <laughs> um, taking us away from Google for a moment, I, I'm wondering if we could go abroad or sure. linguistically abroad and think about other languages. I mean, Gavin, you kicked us off with talking about working in an ancient Greek. And Simon, I know you're, you're working with French at the moment. How do you go about that? I mean, it just add, does it add a further complexity onto this process or is it actually liberating in some way of the creative practice? Well, in my case, I would say it was liberating and it was also an avoiding tactic. It's my way of avoiding setting English. Just as Simon was saying about Britain setting texts, the sound of English being sung to me was that Britain peer sound and I hate it. I really dislike it very, very much. And for that reason, I probably would be, never be master of the Queen's music or get a knighthood, but never mind. I just did not like that sound, and I still don't like it. And so for a long time, I was to find any way of writing something in a different language. As it happened, the very first thing I was asked to write was in ancient Greek. So I was left off the hook there. And how I did that, I had a transliteration of the text, so I could see how it was pronounced. I could ha probably have a fair idea of the rhythm of the words. And I set the first half of the opera before I ever showed any of this to a native Greek speaker. And in fact, the, the second half of the opera, the, the last two and a half acts, 
I had met a Greek speaker and then they went through it, but I had made one mistake in the whole of the first act. It was once where I put the equivalent of the on the wrong beat of the bar. Uh, the rest was okay, but it was guesswork. But I did enjoy the fact that through having this uh, language, which I couldn't understand, and also non, virtually none of the audience could understand, there were two Greek singers in the cast in the original production. But it, it made the whole thing very abstract, rather like hearing Wagner in German, where you can't understand a word, you know what's going on, you know roughly the story, often because of musical references and uh, things which repeat and come back and have a kind of motivic function, you know what's happening. But it, it has a degree of separation. It becomes a third thing. It's not music and words together. It's some sort of third element. And I enjoyed that. Subsequently, I've done a lot of things with other languages. And in those cases, generally, I've worked with it so that someone would read the words to me, record them, first slowly, and then at a natural speed. So I could get the correct pronunciation, how the cadences would fall naturally in speech, so I don't sort of do some ridiculous sort of pause or something as an emphasis where it shouldn't be. But I've done, you know, for, obviously I did Greek and Latin, and that, but I've done French, Italian, Irish, Gaelic, Esperanto, 8th century Icelandic, Faroese, Occitan, Russian, German, medieval Italian, and there are others. And I enjoy this very much. And one of the things that I do when I do this, because I'll usually have a native speaker working with me on this, it, it becomes intelligible to that speaker, and that speaker then verifies it. But I'm, in a sense, naive in that respect. And it becomes a sort of challenge to make sense of something which I actually don't understand. I mean, now I can manage to read Occitan. I'm managing to now, although I have a Russian wife, I'm also managing to study Russian and getting some of that right. But um, a lot of the languages I don't speak. And there are some cases, like the 8th century Gaelic and the 10th century Icelandic, even Irish people and Icelandic people don't understand some of it or even know what those syllables should sound like. So that becomes a, a mysterious area. And I've always enjoyed that challenge. Now, I do do a lot of things in English. You know, I've just finished setting a lot of uh, Edwin Morgan, and I do enjoy setting English text now. And I relax about it because I know there's not a chance in hell that I will ever sound like Benjamin Britten, thank God. As somebody who on occasions has been accused of not even speaking English, <laughs> uh, take, take, taking on uh, the challenge of translating a libretto from another language is you know, just another one of those projects which I know at some level I cannot do. Uh, and therefore, you know, I, I instantly put my hand up to, to take it on. I, I'm at an interesting moment, actually, with uh, the, the Ravel. I, I presume you know the, the piece, Gavin. It's, yeah. you know, the child and the, and the toys, these sort of magical toys which come alive in his, his bedroom to, to chastise him for the way that he's... He's treated the uh, the objects around him and, and animals and his, his yeah. pets and, and so on and so forth. It's quite an interesting uh, piece in itself, you know, just in relation to nature and the environment, if you, if you were to spin it out that way. Um, I, I can't uh, speak French. I can pretty much look at French text and work out what's going on. And I've had a, um, you know, a literal sent to me. And I finished the translation in the sense that underneath those French words in the in the musical score, I have written the English words that I want to substitute them for. 
but uh, COVID uh, intervened at, at this very point. So it still hasn't been performed mm. or even rehearsed in any way. I'm, and I'm anticipating a situation where, you know, we all get into a room together and somebody will be saying, well, this actually, this section is unsingable or it's got too many syllables. And it was laughable in a way, uh, the way that I went about it, because I, I did quite a, a mathematical job on it. I counted out the syllables in the French and then one by one, I replaced them uh, with syllables in English but somehow in my own version of that story I didn't want to modernize it um, it's difficult material in one sense because you know the boy lives in what seems to be a middle upper class suburban French house a lot of his objects in the room are things like teapots uh, but I, I didn't want to, to give him a mobile phone and so on and so forth I, I don't like going to opera when somebody says you know, oh, can you pass me the monkey wrench, Terry? Uh, you know, that, that, t t it's, it's always quite jarring. So I, I wanted to keep within the, the sort of, you know, the plausible range of what was going on there. But one of the great thrills about working on something which is pre-written is the opportunity to, to harmonize. I mean, philosophically, and I, and I suppose linguistically as well, that what's happening there is that there is an original voice and then there is your voice. And when these two things come into contact with each other in combination, they make something completely different and, and slightly outside your own operational capabilities as well. It's a bit like, you know, being in the car and singing along to the Beatles. Something else happens yeah. that isn't on the original record and, and isn't in your voice as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I mean, to, to some extent, it's still a, a, a working progress but i'm i mean quite an exciting phase i i think i think that thing that you're doing with the revel i mean the revel is it's lovely music it's very refined it's it's not kind of upfront and popular but it's very elegant uh and the i mean revel has always been a master of orchestral color and textures i mean the, the instrumental writing is, is unbelievably beautiful and very very clever doing something in English which could be sung to the same music and that is a very tricky area of translation because what you can have you can have a translation of a poem or of a text which makes sense in itself but if it's got to fit in the same rhythm as something in another language it's hard we mentioned the man in room gambling which is spoken by a Spanish reader of course but in English over five minutes about a couple of years after I did that, a group in France asked if I would do a French version of it. So they had all 10 texts translated into French. And then to get the same effect that we would have by hearing a, a sort of rather dodgy Spanish reader reading it in English, they got an Argentinian actor to read it in French. And then we recorded the whole thing. My music stayed the same. So we're going to then have to cut that speech to my music. But what we found with the French translation, because there's so many more words, we have an English 
sentence, say seven words, you have maybe like 13 in French, uh, or even syllables. Uh, what, what happened eventually was almost the whole five minutes was filled up with language. There was no gaps in it at all. So, you know, uh, to, to actually get the numbers the same is incredibly hard. So what I'm saying there is that the act of putting English words under music, which has been already set French words, is technically an incredibly hard thing. I, I hope you've been getting a, you should be getting paid so much a syllable for this time. You know, you should negotiate a bloody good rate of it. <laughs> If that, if that were the case, I would have chosen chosen a longer piece. Yeah, I, I, I so. mean, I've, I've I've always said with with any uh, with any art that uh, a little bit of, of naivety yeah. goes goes a long way. Well, the other th- thing I was going to ex- example of that is my third opera, which was with Blake Morrison again. This time was commissioned by the Opera House in Mainz in Germany, and the Opera House is being rebuilt and reopened in I think two thousand and two or so. And it coincided with the 600th anniversary of the birth of Gutenberg, who lived and worked in Mainz. So we had to devise an opera based on the life of Gutenberg, about which very little is known. So Blake and I had to research the facts that we can have about Gutenberg and get a story. Blake did this text, this libretto, and then I wrote the music, setting an English libretto. But because the opera house was German, and it was the reopening of an opera house. It was a big public event. The whole opera was translated into German and was sung in German. And the opera itself has never been performed in English, which is the language in which I set it, originally performed it. And as it happened, the, pers- the people who did the translation, one was the assistant musical director who was English and his wife who was Irish, fluent German speakers, and they did incredibly well. So it actually sounds like Wagnerian German. So everyone thinks this is great Wagnerian writing. Well, it's not. I didn't do that. I did a performance of two of the uh, arias from in Australia with, uh, with English-speaking uh, singers, and it was a revelation. Uh, one day, perhaps, we'll hear the whole thing. There's an Opera North project for you to do something in English. It was meant to be done in English. It's never been done. But I'm not plugging that at the moment, but, you know, checks in the post. But that's the same thing. What they did is what you're doing. Music existed. The words existed. They put different words there and it had to fit and make musical and semantic sense. I'm going to ask another basic conceptual question just because I'd like to hear you both talk about it. But I wonder to what extent the presence of the human body, speaking, singing, aerating, syllables, words, is what we're looking for in opera rather than understanding. And whether some of these highly complicated uh, processes that you all are going through is in some way an honoring of, the, of that sort of basic fact or, or if it's something else entirely. I'm just struck by that as you know, a lot of people working behind the scenes so that this can come to fruition in the air. Well, I think opera is a, a really bizarre art form. I think it's a massive hybrid of so many different things and it's very unwieldy and it's amazing that it's sustained us. It's rather like the dinosaurs are still alive. These things stagger around. They all have these different kind of things that fit together. And you're right, from our point of view, there's the music, there's the language. But then there's the, the mise-en-scene, there's the staging, the physical nature of the people who are singing it, the way they look, the way they move, the way they're dressed, the nature of their voices, You know, whether they're high, middle or low voices. And even within high, middle, low voices, you'll find this huge variation. When I did this opera 
based on Gutenberg, it happened to be most of the cast were going to be male. We managed to find parts for a couple of women, but essentially they were male parts. And of those, seven were bass voices. And I discovered by looking at the bass singing literature that there are many, many different kind of bass voices. You think, ah, is it a bass opera singer? That's it. But there are many different ones. And I was then able to learn all these different things because it's not just the singing voice, it's the different nuance within the singing voice. Like with sopranos, you have the coloratura, you have the lyric, you have the spinto, all these different kinds of voices. And they then convey different sorts of meaning. Some voices are more agile, some have greater weight. That's just the, the sound of the voice, not sound, not the words. And then there's the sort of nature of the people themselves as they move about. You have this incongruity, physical incongruity on stage. You have things like Tristan Isolde, Two Young Lovers, which is often sung by hugely overweight middle-aged people. And you have to go get rid of all that. Somehow it's a very complicated hybrid of strange and quite often incompatible elements. When you talk about that very sort of plural world of, of opera, in comparison to the world of poetry, which has to be one of the most solitary pursuits in, in terms of the arts, you know, you are on your own when you're writing. Um, and generally when a poem is received, it's received by an individual uh, in silence. So it's a particularly narrow channel and to be delivered into that you know, operatic environment is quite bewildering for a writer. So many uncontrollable variables there. And I would make uh, an equivalence between the poem and, and the song lyric. And I, I often talk about this in, in relation to, to Bob Dylan, who's you know, sometimes described as a poet. And aside from wanting to make the point that in my view, Dylan's one of the great lyricists of you know, the late 20th, early 21st century. My argument against him being described as a poet is where are the poems? Because, you know, you can take the work into a, into a classroom of students who are young enough not to know the songs. And they look at these things on the page and they're not hearing the tunes. And they're thinking, well, actually, this piece of writing is doing everything that we're told not to do in a poem. Sort of cheesy rhymes, mixed metaphors, um, hypermetric syllables, things that don't make, you know, all, all, those, all those kind of things. But the, the point is that when those lyrics are sung, they're sung by somebody who has a performing style, you know, vocal delivery, lots of range, lots of different ways of, de of delivering lines. He wears a funny hat, he's got great boots, uh, you know, he's got an orchestra or he's got a band and lots and lots of different things that end up being part of the great performance of this piece in which the lyrics are only a small portion. Whereas with a poem, they are absolutely everything. There is nothing else. There's no backbeat. There is usually black marks against a white page. And those things are being you know, received in, in silence. And the, the comparison could hardly be greater. And yet, we quite often combine these two things on the one stage. And Bob Dylan, of course, gets a Nobel Prize. Um, I have a sort of like obverse of that. In fact, with Opera North, I did a project with Opera North called Mercy and Grand, in which we took the songs of Tom Waits and did new recordings of them. Now, 
Tom Waits, like Bob Dylan, is someone who is uniquely associated with the delivery of his songs. The sound of Tom singing is something which absolutely goes with every song that's there. When you hear them sung by somebody else, things change. decided to do these songs and have them sung by a classical mezzo-soprano who also sang things like Sondheim and Weil, so it's not just a kind of Puccini kind of soprano. And that way we were divorcing the text and the delivery of the songs from the music itself. So we were looking at this as musical composition, right, as if you'd found some songs by Schumann, the music and this text. We didn't change the songs, but the person delivering them changed. And of course, I, I did new arrangements. But that, in a way, does change the meaning to a certain extent. But what you tend to hear, you then hear the words, you then hear the music in a different way. You appreciate it as musical composition, not as a specially delivered kind of sound. We've been through all of my questions. Simon and I could go on talking till the cows come home. In That's fact, I, yeah. in fact, once COVID is over, I hope we do. I noticed, in fact, in the forward to the collection of poems, Mars, the Marsden poems, the um, magnetic fields, it's called, talking about Marsden and the River Cone and how that ends up with the uh, flowing out into the Humber. So Simon and I are linked through Ghoul. I mean, the waters flow through the ooze and the dawn and the rest of them into eventually the Humber, and we're linked by these Yorkshire waterways, you know. And uh, when I did this project with Blake Morrison called The Stopping Train, which is about the train from Goul to Hull, which stops, he comes up with the line about water being the essence of uh, music and poetry. And where else could you come from but Goul? So we're both linked by these, this, these waterways, you know. So I'm sure that Simon and I could go on talking forever. And you can have a whole series, you know. Uh, we we'd probably it'd make us a fortune. It probably cover up in North Stets. Why not do it? Yeah, I think that's. I think it could be a running series for sure. Because mm -hmm. so I, I like these. I like being having you both in the room saying, "Can I pose you an abstract?" 
question and then I just sit back. It's it, this has been a great way to spend an afternoon. <laughs> Maybe the the finishing point for this section of the conversation then is for me to say at some point in the future I will um, write a few lyrics on some waterproof paper, fold them into a shape <laughs> of a boat, go down to the local stream here, pop them in, and a few weeks later they will uh, they will wash up in. Uh, in Gavin's garden, and uh, you can see if there's a piece of music that will fit around them, and, th and then, we'll, then we'll be joined that way, Gavin. Unfortunately, I don't live in Ghoul anymore. That's okay, I'm afraid I'm stuck there. But they would they would appear in Ghoul. Uh, I'd have to double check with the with the the colon. Does the colon flow into the Don and then into the ooze, or does it go somewhere else into the ooze? I'm not sure. I think it's all uh, just fl overflowing at this point. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. This, it's no such thing as a river anymore. It's just it's just one big it's, lake. It's, it's, York, it's called Yorkshire. That's right. Yeah, the, the the cone flows into York, which flows into the ah. into the North Sea. So okay, if yeah. if it flows into York, it flows into the Ouse. That's yeah. fine. So it passes me on the way. I'll make sure I'll wave yeah. at the bottle. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, the, just check on its check on its its viability as it goes past. Yeah, no, the, the whole all, all these Yorkshire rivers end up coming through Ghoul, you see. The Ghoul is the last is the last place where all the Yorkshire rivers come together. Eventually they move on when the Trent comes in, that becomes the Humber, you know. So we are the are the, the mouthpiece of Yorkshire as it were, as far as water's concerned. I'm the mouthpiece of Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I should say a closing point. So I feel as though this is a, a great starting point for a discussion of words and music between Gavin Breyers and Simon Armitage. And I hope that we can take this conversation forward. And thank you so much to both of you for uh, sharing so much from each of your vast perspectives over the years. You've been listening to a Thinking with Opera podcast produced by Opera North and the University of Leeds. For more information and further reading on the subjects discussed, you can download the accompanying notes. Visit operanorth.co.uk for more audio and video streaming and the latest news and performance details. <laughs>